Good evening and thank you for joining. We're a few minutes early, so we'll be getting started pretty soon here.
Welcome everybody, thank you for joining today. I'm filling in for Bill and we'll be getting started here in a few minutes. Welcome, welcome everybody. Thank you for being here today. Uh, you're in for a special treat today. And I say that because I'm the guest speaker and we're gonna share some, some different insights on the probate business that's going on right now. So uh, we'll get started here in just a few moments. Feel free to unmute yourself and ask questions um, at the points that I start questions, but uh, we'll be getting started here in just a few minutes. Okay, well, I have that it's four o'clock, so we might as well start at four on the dot. I see that other people are still coming into the meeting, so I will be admitting them as we go forward here. Uh, I'm Kevin Sales. I'm a closing agent for Lawyers Title, and I'm a probate expert, and um, I will be facilitating for today as the guest speaker, as Bill um, asked me to, to be a guest speaker today and share a topic with you today. So I want to let you know a little bit about how this is going to go. I'm going to cover some of the highlights, the key areas that investors and real estate agents uh, miss 
when dealing with a probate property or anything under the probate umbrella, um, whether it's conservatorship, whether it's a power of attorney, et cetera. So I'm gonna cover some key highlights on that. And then I'll open the floor for any transactions that you may have. You may have a situation you're dealing with. You may have a, a, a lead or a person you've been working with that you're trying to um, do a transaction with. And I'll open the floor if you guys wanna talk about those things or, or share thoughts. Uh, and then we'll we'll wrap up. We'll probably wrap up a little earlier today than, than some of the normal days. I'm gonna do my best to continue admitting people to the room. So at times I'm gonna have a, a few PowerPoint slides. I may abandon them completely or I may be going through those slides and pause because I have to let folks into the, the room as they, as they come in. So um, happy Thursday to you guys. I hope all is well. You know, our market is booming right now and real estate business is very, very good, of course, as we all know. And probate is kind of in a similar season. Uh, with probate, the baby boomers have driven the, the, the business for the most part. Every attorney that I talk to that, do, that deals with probate trusts and estates, they're all swamped up to their ears in business. Uh, my business is the same way. The agents that I know that work probate are the same way. And it's, it's really an indication of where we are in this, I guess you can call it the cycle of life or the cycle of the baby boomers lives, being that they're at that age where that transfer of wealth is happening. You know, we all know that they've said the baby boomers are the richest generation ever. And um, they're at that age where they are transferring their wealth. So this is, this is good for us. This is good news for all of us that are dealing with the probate industry and it will continue to be good news for us. So I, I like to start out when I'm doing a workshop or talk about with, with, by starting with some statistics. Um, there's some interesting things happening in our economy that maybe everyone doesn't know about, but I'll share them here. Uh, number one, the fastest growing age group in the United States are those that are 85 or older. I mean, that's just astonishing to me. Maybe a generation or two ago, people didn't even expect to live to be 85. And now the fastest growing age group in the US is the group that's 85 and over. Just, just amazing and a good reason to be involved in this probate real estate area uh, or niche in the real estate business. The life expectancy now is 77 years old, which is good. It's getting up there and I think it's growing and getting older and older every single year. And, and here's some, some interesting things about what's happening to our population. The, the, in 2008, so almost 20 years ago, there was no state in the United States that had 20% of their population be over 65. I was shocked when I first read the statistics because I always imagined, you know, Florida, maybe Texas, some of these states that don't have state income taxes, maybe Nevada, you know, people's mindset is go live where you're gonna live, you retire, move to a state that doesn't have income taxes, and you live happily ever after in your golden years. Yet there was no state in the whole US that had 20% or more of their population be over 65. But by 2028, which is what, just seven years from now, 30 states will have 20 or more percent of their population be over the age of 65. So the bottom line, we're an aging, we're an aging nation. Um, and, and being part of probate real estate, um, if you've heard me talk before, I always talk about probate is not just the court ordered procedure called probate. It is also this umbrella of things like transfer on death deed sales, since that's a law in California now. It's also um, um, 
any death sale. So it could be a joint tenancy or a tenancy in common or something that does not require a court procedure, but someone died. So it is now in that umbrella. People that market themselves to that area of real estate end up getting those types of leads. It's also conservatorship sales. It's also the actual probate cases and trust sales. And so it's, it's, there's more business in this niche of real estate than ever before. And, and we're seeing some interesting things in the conservatorship area where conservatorships are not really favored sales. And, and what I mean by that is this, if someone is conserved, meaning they're incapacitated, the court doesn't want to say, oh, let's go and sell their property. Why? Because what if that, per you know, there's no, there's no cure for dementia or Alzheimer's right now. What if a drug gets approved tomorrow that cures dementia? So all these parties who have no capacity to, a, to do a transaction now can be healed by this pill and back to normal. Well, if you sell all of those conserved parties' properties, then where do they live? Uh, imagine I get in a car accident, I'm in a coma for two months, my family sells my house, I wake up out of the coma and I'm like, cool. I catch a taxi, go back to back home or my family picks me up. And I'm like, wait, why are we not going to my house? Well, it was sold. The, the courts, the law, the guidelines in this area of law, they don't want that to happen. So conservatorships are, are not favored in the, in the court or in the law, conservatorship sales. But the reason we're seeing more conservatorship sales now than ever before is because of the cost of care. The cost for caring for parties that need full-time care or part-time care or assisted living is so high that people have to sell their properties and um, pay for their care. So I'm gonna share my screen and I have a couple, just a few slides I wanna go over uh, that will bring us to some really good information. Um, I kind of went through all this already, but I want to share some information about, you know, contacting parties and some of the, these are what I'm going to go over are some of the key areas where people make mistakes or errors or don't do the right procedure in their process. And it causes a delay or causes them to start down the path of one transaction when it ends up being a different type of transaction later. So the, the first thing is your first contact. When you have first contact, and it doesn't matter how this contact happens. It doesn't matter if someone calls you and says, hey, I want to sell my house, but you know, my dad's gone. Or if you're calling on some probate leads or if you're door knocking or however it happens. But when you have that first contact, the most important thing to look at right away is you've got to look at title. And when I say look at title, it often means different than what other people think look at title means. Most, a lot of people say, oh, look at title. So they go on the MLS and pull up a property profile or they go on their title profile account that the title company has given them and they pull up a profile. That's not what I'm referring to. When I say look at title, I'm saying look at the actual vesting deed. Look at the deed where they took title because all the, the devil is in the details. And if there's a property that says John and Jane Doe joint tenants, that's very different than John and Jane Doe tenants in common. Even though it's only one word different on that deed, it's an extremely different situation. So, so what's important to know is that you, you, you must look at the title, the, the vesting deed of the parties that own the property. If you don't, you won't be dealing with the proper information. And so we're going to look through um, some, some vesting portions of deeds here in just a moment because um, I think it's a good idea to look at. So I'm going to go over the most common vesting uh, vesting means the way you hold title. The most common vesting ways, which are sole proprietorship, meaning one, I'm sorry, sole ownership. That's a business sole proprietorship. Sole ownership, meaning just one person owns the property. Uh, joint tenancy, tenancy in common, 
trustees of a trust owning a property and transfer on death deeds. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the title and what that means for your transaction. So you've talked to the initial person, maybe it's the son or daughter of the decedent, and they've said, you know, mom, dad, grandma, whoever it is, they've died. And now you want to look to see, okay, what are we going to be dealing with with this property? Um, so first we have sole ownership. This is the, I'm going to show you the grantee portion of a deed. I've blown it up so it's larger. Um, I don't know about you guys. I need reading glasses. So that's why I've blown it up to make it larger to be easier to read. So this will be, you know, whomever the seller hereby grants to, this is the vesting portion of a deed hereby grants to Jane Doe an unmarried woman. In any deed that you're going to see at some point is going to have a verb that says hereby grants to and it'll say the person it's granting to, whether it's a quick claim deed or a grant deed here in California and other states, it could be a warranty deed, but you're gonna have some verbiage that's like this. So in this case, Jane Doe, an unmarried woman owns the property. Pretty simple, nothing complicated, sole ownership. If the property is in California, I'm sorry, let me take a moment here. There's um, several people waiting to enter. Let me admit them, there we go. Okay, so if the property is in California, it's, it's simple for us. If the property is in California and they own the property by themselves. Like for instance, the way it is on the screen, Jane Doe, an unmarried woman. If that's the case, that property is going to probate. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. There's no questions about it. It is certain, there is certainty. When a person dies with a property in their name in California, probate has to happen. Now there are other states where, in, and I'm not sure where people are that are on this Zoom, so that's why I'm covering this. In, in other states, I bought a property um, a year and a half ago in Chicago. The seller, I don't remember her name, but let's say it was Jane Doe. And when we see the title report, I look at it and her name's not on title. It was her mother's name. But in Chicago, it's absolutely no problem. They do what they call ownership affidavits. So if you're in a different state, you may be in an ownership affidavit state where the closing agent, title company, can They'll have an affidavit you'll fill out. There'll be a questionnaire that goes along with it. And based on the information provided, they may be able to allow the children and or heirs of the decedent sell the property without going through any procedure. It's amazing. For those of you who are in, in California, I mean, we just look at, I mean, I look at this and go, man, that is so awesome. There's so many transactions that would be much faster, that would have less procedures, that wouldn't have to go through court, et cetera. But unfortunately in California, we can't do that. So if you're in California, and you have something like this where Jane Doe is on title and she died, done deal, it's going to probate. The sole ownership is easy. Then we have joint tenancy. Joint tenancy, John Doe, a single man, and Jane Doe, a single woman, all as joint tenants. Let's cover some interesting information about joint tenancy because joint tenancy, to my understanding, I'm not an attorney. Oops, I hit the wrong button and went forward. Let's go back one. Okay, I gotta, I'm sorry. I gotta stop my screen share and go back. Um, when people are, are trying to get into the meeting and I have to add them, uh, unfortunately, sometimes when I click the wrong button comes up. So forgive me for that. Um, okay, here we go. Joint tenancy. Hopefully you guys can't see my screen right now. Let me get it back on. Great. Can someone, someone just unmute and let me know that you can see my screen so that I know you got it there. Um, yeah, if I can see the screen. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, so so joint tenancy. So John Doe, a single man, and Jane Doe, a single woman, maybe they're siblings, and they hold title as joint tenancy. In California, and I believe it's this way in most states, 
joint tenancy must be explicit. What does that mean? That means you must, it must be written on the deed. There is no assumption or presumption of joint tenancy. You must state joint tenancy. And if you do not, then it is not joint tenancy. Okay. Here's the rule with joint tenancy. When people hold title as joint tenants, last man alive owns 100% of the property. So if Jane Doe dies, John Doe owns it. If John Doe dies first, Jane Doe owns it, period, end of story. Now, what's interesting is this has stood the test of time and the, the test of lawsuits. Um, my understanding is it's bulletproof under the law. So the fam if Jane Doe dies first and the family of Jane Doe says, hey, they had an agreement. It was supposed to be where if she died, we got her, her, her portion, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't stand up under the law. Joint tenancy means the last one alive is the one that owns it. So if you're in a situation where you have a joint tenancy, and you look at it, and let's say in this case, um, let's say that Jane Doe passed away first, and then you know two years later, John Doe passed away, you only have to probate the estate of John Doe. An affidavit of death of joint tenant would, would be filed for Jane Doe, showing that she died, and then John Doe's estate would be probated. So it's an interesting distinction. You have to know who died first, and you probate the second to die you probate the second to die person's estate. Um, due to COVID, I had a, a situation earlier this year where it was like an aunt and uncle of the person that called the real estate agent that called me. And I believe the aunt died like on, a, on the first of the month and the 15th of the month, the uncle died both of COVID and, and it happened back to back. But you file an affidavit of death for the first to die and the second to die, you file a probate case for them because they then own it uh, by themselves. Okay. Now let's look at tenancy in common. Tenancy in common is, and I'll take a break here in just a moment to, to answer some questions about these topics so I don't get too far into it. But if you have questions, you can feel free to put them in the chat and I'll answer them um, or I'll take a break here in just a moment. Uh, so tenancy in common. Tenancy in common is the presumed ownership if people don't specify. So if the deed just says John Doe and Joe Smith, and that's it, John Doe, a single man, Joe Smith, an unmarried man, and that's all it says, they have the property and tenancy in common. Whenever someone does not specify joint tenancy or trust or some other ownership, it is tenancy in common. Okay, that's the, that's the rule. That's the way it works in, in our law here in California. It's probably similar in other states and that's to protect the heirs, right? It's to protect the families. So when you have tenancy in common, when one person dies, their portion gets probated to their heirs. Their portion passes on to their heirs. Now, again, if you're in another state where you don't necessarily have to probate every ownership in a property, then there could be other methods to transfer their property other than probate. But here in California, one party dies, they own 10% of the property, you have to probate their interest. So that's an important uh, point. In this case, we see tenancy in common with 60, 40 uh, different percentages. Tenancy in common is the only type of ownership where you can separate percentages. You cannot do that with joint tenancy. With joint tenancy, everyone owns the whole property. Last to die owns the whole thing. So um, uh, tenancy in common is the only way you can specify different percentages. Now, an interesting thing, California has this and many other states do as well where they have small probate administration. So in California, there's, I think, three to five different probate codes that cover small probate administration, one for only personal property, one for real estate and personal under a certain amount, another one for any type of property under a certain amount, et cetera. But the key here is, you know, in California, we don't typically have uh, the, the highest level of small property administration, I believe is like 166, 250 or something like that. We don't have any houses worth less than that in, in, in you know, in any 
other than maybe some rural areas or, or you know small small things generally speaking houses are not worth less than that amount but sometimes you have a property where there's nine or there's seven owners or something like that or it's a lower valued property and there's multiple owners so their portion could be less than the amount that causes you to have to do a court-ordered probate if that is the case then the good news is you have uh, small probates administration procedures that you can utilize but you, you know you got to get legal advice and talk to an attorney about that they've, they've got to advise you on that um, there's a lot of particulars on those i'm going to cover one more example of tenants in common and then i'll open for for questions so this one is tenancy in common where they just state tenants in common uh, jane doe and john doe as tenants in common the presumption would be they each own 50 percent um, but that is not up to a title company to decide or an escrow company or us, you know, real estate professionals. That's up to them to decide if they have their own agreement or whatever. And if they don't agree, then they fight that out in court. We wouldn't decide that the percentages, but the presumption is 50-50 because there's nothing specified. So uh, I've covered the first, I guess, three, three types of ownership, tenancy in common, joint tenancy or sole ownership. Are there any questions at this point before I go into trusts and um I think it's, it's Joe, trust and revocable transfer on death. Any, any questions up to this point? Let me see if I see anything in the chat. And I do not. This in Lawndale, California. Um, can everybody hear me? Yes, yes, we can okay, hear you. Great. So my question is this, it's been a long time. You know, I used to do home loans back in, you know, 1999 and what have you. and. I've been a realtor for you know some time but i became handicapped and so i'm just now getting back into the game and regarding this um i understand that an attorney would be able to give them the you know uh ins and outs of you know who can do what percentage and et cetera, et cetera and what would be a you know what would be the differences between the filings but would a cpa be the best person to tell them the financial advantages of doing each one of those? Well, you know, I always tell people, get your own tax and legal advice. Because okay. every person is not the same. Right. And there is some spillover. You know, um, some law firms, I work with a, a few law firms that do probate, but they also have a very strong tax division because much of the state planning is done to avoid tax consequences. So they kind of go oh, hand in hand. But yeah. Every, but every person, I mean, I know some, um, estate planning attorneys that will directly refer you out to your CPA for certain advice. I know others that they handle it all and they'll get their tax attorney over to, to advise on stuff like that. So, uh, you know, I always say get your own tax and legal advice because the, the, the sharper people will get advice from both or at least run it by both. I typically will, will, will handle things and tell my CPA, hey, this is what I'm doing. How does that look? How does that sound? And that way I'm getting it from, from both ends. So good question. And it's, it's good for them to get advice from both. Good. I don't see, let's see, is there anything? There's something in the chat. Let me see what it says here. Yeah. Would you, so, uh, someone, someone that appears to be in another state said, would you just review the laws in our state? Yeah, you know, most, generally speaking, and I can't speak for every state, but many times a closing agent, a title company, or if, if, you, if you're a state that does escrow like we do in California, escrow, they may have um, some charts or guidelines that say, here's the ways you can hold title. Um, it's, it's always a funny thing to me because a buyer, you know, first time home buyer who's never owned property, at some point during the, their, their buying the process, they're going to say, how do you want to hold title? 
So you're going to ask someone who knows nothing about owning real estate how you want to hold title, which is a pretty important consideration, and they don't have any information. So usually the closing agents, title companies, escrow companies will have some sort of documentation on that, uh, but you can review uh, in your state specifically to determine you know, how how's best over there and, and how it works with the different types of ownership. But yeah, absolutely review in your state. Okay, let me move forward. So trust ownership. Uh, trust ownership, uh, and, and this is different in different states. In California, the trust cannot hold title. The trustee of the trust can hold title. However, I, I was speaking with an attorney a few weeks back, and in Colorado, the trust holds title. So the way we hold title in California, if this were John, John, Johnny Doe owns a property, and he's going to deed to his trust. He would deed to Johnny Doe as trustee of the Johnny Doe Living Trust dated blah, blah, blah. The dated part is how he identifies his trust, but it, it, you see he's holding title as trustee of the trust. There are states, however, so you should check with your local state. And if you're doing an estate plan or working with someone that's doing one, the attorney should be able to advise you on this. And, and, and there are some states where the trust, the Johnny Doe Living Trust dated blah, 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 would hold title. So that's an important piece of the puzzle. But for, for those of us here in California, and this came from into California deed. Obviously, we changed the names and stuff. But the 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 trustee of the trust must hold title um, because the trust is not considered an actual entity like an, a separate person from from the the, the trustor. So that's how trust would hold title. Now, in California, if you were to to pull this up, so I talked about sole ownership. It would go to probate with joint tenancy. If, if there's parties that are alive, they own the whole property. Once they've all died, the last to live is the one whose estate has to be probated. That's the, the, the part, you know, the estate that would get probated. Um, on tenancy in common, each person's ownership is separated. So when one party dies, you got to probate their portion. When another party dies, you have to probate theirs unless it's meeting some small state's uh, administration laws. With a trust, you avoid probate. So in this situation, if Johnny Doe were to pass away, he would not have to go through pro the, his his estate, his property would not have to go through probate. They would the, the successor trustee. So a trust is going to specify who takes over when the trustee is gone or incapacitated or dies. So the successor trustee would take over, and that would be the party that um, deals with the, the sale. So you know when there's a trust involved, one of the things that should should always be asked, whether there's a trust or not, whether it's in a trust or not, is you know when when someone dies. Okay, so John Doe died. We see his name was on title. Did he have a will? That's an excellent question. Did he have a trust? You want to know if they did any estate planning documents. If they had a trust and they did the proper things, they would fund the trust by deeding to the trustee of the trust. But we, it's very common to find a situation where the property was in John Doe, a single man, and he never deeded it to the trust, and yet he died and he has a trust. That can change the procedures and the type of real estate sale that is actually going to happen. So the good questions to ask once you review the title is, okay, uh, is there a trust? I need a copy of it. Can I see it? Is there a will? Can I see that? And get those documents, get copies of those documents so that you will know how the transaction is supposed to take place and how and what you need to provide. You'll have what you need to provide to the, the, the closing agent that's going to be closing because at some point, the title company is usually going to ask for a copy of the trust. The escrow company is going to ask for certain documentation as well. And you have to have those copies. So, so when you look at that deed, you know, make it trigger those other questions. Hey, did you have a will? Did he have, did the decedent have any estate planning documents? That kind of covers everything, but was there a trust or a will? All right. Uh, now, this is a new thing in California. I, I believe, well, at the time um, I wrote a book on probate real estate, at the time I wrote that book, there were 23 states, I believe it was, that had transfer on death deeds. This is newer to California. We've only had it for five years. 
But a transfer on death deed, it's kind of like a beneficiary designation on a bank account. I see a hand raise. I'll, I'll take the question in just a moment after I cover this, this document. Um, it's kind of like a beneficiary designation on your life insurance or on a bank account. So on my life insurance, it says, hey, Kevin, you're, you're insured so that when you die, someone gets this money. Who do you want to get the money when you die? And I specify who I want to get the money um, on a bank account. When I have a bank account at, say, Bank of America, I can go in there and they'll say, okay, great. When you die, who do you want to get the account? And you specify a beneficiary. A transfer on death deed is similar to that. So it's a deed that while the person is living has no effect. Okay, so it has no effect. Hudson Doe, that's the sign name at the bottom, if you see here. Hudson Doe owns this property. This deed, when it records, has no effect while he is alive. Now, however, when Hudson passes away, this deed dictates who gets the property. And as Hudson has specified here, um, our law here in California requires that you indicate not only the name of the person, but also their relationship to you. So it's, it's not something that may be required in every state, but that's how we do it here. Um, so it tells who's gonna receive the property. So Bob Doe, my son, J Jason Doe, my son, Sean Doe, my son, and Michael Doe, my son, each as to an undivided 25% as tenants in common. Um, and so they each get their 25%. When they sign this, this transfer on death deed, again, has no, no impact while he's living. Once he dies, those are the parties that own the property. So you may, you know, again, this is a new law in California. Other states may have had it for years. You may see these. They're starting to be more common, at least in our state, because the law has been around now for five years. And so we're starting to see more of these. Um, this brings me to one last point. Anytime you see it, well, at least in California, anytime you see an inheritance, so sometimes the, the vesting document, the document that gives someone ownership to a property is from an old probate case. So dad owned the property. He, they filed a probate when he died and the property went to his three children. And there was a court order from the court that got recorded and that's what put the property in their names. Typically inheritance, again, it's always gonna be tenancy in common, even if they don't specify. So if they just say, um, you know, to, to John, Jason, and Sean evenly or equally or, or whatever, it would almost always be tenancy in common because that's the way when people receive a property from inheritance, it's typically, the, the law typically makes it tenancy in common. Okay, so that's my, my last slide of the vesting descriptions. I, I see that there's a hand raised and your name is not showing on the screen. So, so go ahead, unmute and ask your question. Um, hi, I had a question with regards to um, the prior, was the trust? Um, yes. And with regards to, you had mentioned, um, you can ask for copies of the doc. Um, I know the trust can be extensive. So is there a particular page? And then separately, at what point do you ask um, um, for this? I know that uh, sometimes these could be very complicated. So is it something that you want to know in advance of, of getting the bid accepted or, um, does it really matter? Because I know sometimes they could be messy. Yeah, so, so let me answer your second question first. At what point do you ask for it? Up front, because if you don't know who, so the trust is gonna designate a successor trustee. John, the trustor and trustee, the guy who created the trust, he died. His trust is gonna say who has powers oh. on his death or incapacity. If we don't obtain that trust, if you don't obtain that trust up front, then how do you know who to sign the contract with? How do you know which person to sign your agreement? Um, I learned this years ago that people would think, oh, he's the oldest son, so it's him. Oh, he's the, she's the oldest daughter, so it's her. 
That has nothing to do with it. I'm, I'm the youngest of my siblings. Matter of fact, I'm the second youngest of all my step siblings as well. But I'm the youngest of all my siblings. And partly because of what I do for a living being, you know, the, the probate expert at a title company, uh, partly because of that, but partly because of my financial background, uh, my dad has me as the successor trustee of the trust. So, um, so you, you, if you don't have that trust, you don't know who is supposed to be in charge. Same thing with a will. Usually a will will specify, oh, uh, I, John Doe Sr., want my son, John Doe Jr., to be in charge of my estate. Until you see that will, you don't know who's going to be in charge. And I have seen scenarios where people missed out on transactions or transactions just could not close because they were working with the wrong party. Uh, one, one in particular, a, an agent was working with the nephew of the decedent. And I'm sure for all of us, without knowing probate at all, we can all, we can all admit or, or understand that my nephew is not as close of a relation as my son, right? That's obvious. When it comes to my assets when I die, it just makes logical sense that my son would get more or all of it rather than my nephew, right? So this guy's working with the nephew of the decedent. Gets, in a, get, gets a contract signed with him, everything, et cetera. Well, when they go to file the attorney has to do what is normally required, which is do some due diligence to make sure this nephew is the closest relative because there's several parties in California. Our secession goes spouse, child, parent, sibling. And then I think it's like aunt and uncle and then nephew. So there's like five or six categories of people that come before a nephew. So they have to do some due diligence to determine, is this really the closest relative? They did that due diligence and they found a daughter. The decedent had a daughter. Now the nephew's telling everybody there's no one, there's no other relatives, I'm the closest relative, but there was a daughter. Had they not done that due diligence, they would have been, they would have gone all the way to maybe even the closing table and had the wrong party involved. So I recommend that you get that information up front because that way when you sign your contract, when you sign your listing agreement, when you sign your sale contract, whatever you're signing with them, you have the right party that you're working with. Now to answer your other question, what, what part of the trust? So, so is there a certain part? Yes, there are absolutely specific parts that we require. The problem is the average layperson, meaning the, the, you know, if I were to grab a trust, I could find it in a trust in like two minutes. The average regular person is not going to know. And I, I've been doing this for about 26 years. Whenever I've asked someone for a trust, 27 years actually now, uh, actually 28 years, gosh, time is flying. This is 2021. So in my 28 years, every time someone attempted to provide me just the parts of the trust that we needed, it was always wrong every single time. The exception has been when, when their estate planning attorney provided it. So it's best to get the whole copy so we can see what we need to see. But also don't think people are doing something shady if they don't want to provide it because there could be account numbers in there. There's a lot of private information that could be in the trust. So the areas that we need, we need to know what happens upon the person's death. So there's going to be a part of the trust that's going to decide what happens upon their death. If they're, if they're alive but incapacitated, we need to know what happens upon their incapacity. Uh, there may be a part for incapacity. There may be a part that says how you determine incapacity. So, so we would need those parts. Um, who takes over when the trustee, the original trustee is deceased or incapacitated? We need that part. Um, there should be a portion that happens that says what happens upon death. And that part is, can be hard. Some, some trusts are real explicit. Upon my death, do this. Other trusts have pages and pages and pages of stuff that's supposed to happen. And, and so it can get really 
it can be a, 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 a woven web of, of information in there. So I highly recommend get a full copy of the trust and all amendments and then provide that to your closing agent because they're going to need to see that. I would imagine that it would cause potentially a sort of extend if there was to, if there was. I can't, so I'm hearing someone's phone or some music and you, said you would imagine um, that it would cause what? Is someone playing music? If you could mute, please. Okay, you said you imagine it would cause what? Uh, escrow to extend if it was a bit too messy. If the trust was too messy? Well, the details. Yeah, um, no, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say it causes escrow to extend. I would say it causes more time for review. Uh, there's more that has to be reviewed. I mean, I look at some trusts and in literally four minutes, I know everything I need to know. I'm good. I close it up. We're good to go. I've had other trusts that I spent hours reviewing and, and trying to determine because uh, you can put whatever you want in a trust. Attorneys can use all kinds of clauses. Um, there, there are standard clauses that are often used and because I've looked at so many, I typically can see those, but every trust is pretty much different. And so it, it can be quite a bit different. I see, you know, for some reason, when I'm trying to see the names here, the names are not popping up. So I see two more folks with their hand up. I see a, a lady, I think you were first and then a gentleman. So um, let's go first. I think you, you look like you might be in your car. Why don't you go first? Hi. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hi, this is Nareet. Hi, Nareet. Uh, in Hi, in regards to the transfer on death deed, is uh -huh. there a tax reassessment or any tax consequences? Well, it's a, it's a change in ownership. So in California, our change in ownership laws govern that. So it is a change in ownership. And if you know, since Prop 19 passed, parent to child exclusions no longer count unless it's the owner occupied property of the parent and the owner occupied property of the child or becomes the owner occupied property of the child within a year. So yes, it is a, the, the law in California at least generally states that the death is the change in ownership. So even if you don't transfer title, the date of death is the change in ownership. So when, so some people think, oh, I'm gonna leave mom on title because then I don't have any property tax consequences. Nope, the change happened upon the death. So once they find out when they died, everything's gonna revert back and retroactively go back to that date. So good. Okay, good. thank you. No problem. Um, I see Rama, I believe. You yeah, yeah, I have a question. You see, after receiving the full authority, uh, can we go on uh, listing the home? After receiving what? Full authority. That is uh, authority. Authority. E165. Yes, yes. And I'm going to go over the, the letters in just a moment because this is a very, very important point. So very good question. And thank you for the segue, Rama. Now, Jane, I think I saw that you had a hand up. Yes. Um, so if it's going through actual probate, we wouldn't even need to ask for the trust because there would be no trust, correct? Well, okay. So, so let's say a person dies with their name, just John Doe. And, and they do have a trust. So they're going to have an option. They could do a regular probate or they could do what's called a Hegstead petition, which is you go into court and you get the judge to, to order that the property is actually part of the trust. Now, that's not for us to advise or, or you guys to advise. That's something their attorney is going to advise them on which procedure is, is better in their situation based on all the you know, specifics of their situation. But that is, is, that's why you want to ask. The other reason you want to ask is because if there is a trust, even though the property is not in the trust, that trust may state that or, or will state, you know, so-and-so is my successor trustee. 
that gives you a clue into who's probably going to be the party that's going to be in charge. Because if there is a trust, even if they're not using the trust, but they're going to go through probate, you know, there's kind of like, look, in his trust, which we're dealing with other property based on this trust, he put me in charge. Wouldn't you think, Judge, that he wants me to be in charge of the probate case as well? You know, that, that's something that, you know, the attorneys would probably utilize in, in the court case. But, um, you know, it's a little out of, it's, it's a little more into the law side, not in the, the title insurance side. But it's important to know there are times when, say there's a will, and even though we're not going by the will, or say, not that we're going against the will, but say we're utilizing a trust or something else, but there are times when having another document helps us verify, okay, this is what the decedent wanted. They aren't going too far outside the box with maybe, maybe there's something that we're doing that's a little, a little different than the norm. So, okay, so I, I covered the first thing you should do, which is look at title. The, the next thing, if you're dealing with a probate, um, and this is almost all states, not every state does letters. Um, some states will do like an order for probate that will put a person in charge. Uh, in California, we do letters in, in Texas does them, Florida does them, Colorado does them, many, many other states do letters. Um, the letters, the letters are typically a one-page document, at least in California, some states might be longer. And the letters are what appoint the person to be in charge. It's the first thing you should obtain. I think of it like this. When a police officer pulls you over for a, dry, a traffic violation, what's the first thing they ask for? Driver's license and registration. They wanna know that you're allowed to drive and who you are and that the car is not stolen or illegal, right? And it's kind of the same thing here. The first thing that you want to obtain is their letters. Now, you may be talking with them before they have letters or, and that sort of thing, but once they're appointed, once they file their court case, and it's usually a very short time after that, that they're appointed as the administrator or executor of the estate, you wanna get a copy of their letters. The letters, like I said, are typically a one-page document that tell you who's in charge. Here's an example of letters in California. Um, and you know, when I was prepping this, these slides, I forgot that there would be you know, numerous people from other states. I, should, I, I have some examples from Colorado, from Texas, from Florida. I could have had those up, but they're, they're all pretty similar. And if you read the documents, it's pretty plain and simple. Um, you can see, like even if you read every word on this document, it wouldn't take you more than maybe five minutes. It's not that much writing and it's not that complicated. So up at the top, you have the attorney info, Round about the middle of the, of the boxes in the top, it says estate of, we've whited out the full name, but it's the estate of Perry, okay? So Perry is the decedent. That should match your title. Remember we talked about looking at the deed. That should match your deed, okay? Um, then we have letters and it tells down here in box number two, the court. So, so obviously the things that are not checked don't apply in this situation. The things that are checked do apply. So box number two is checked and it tells you the court appoints and the name is filled in. Again, we widened out part of it because this is a real case. So I didn't want people's, you know, one of you might be yeah. the of, of these parties or something. So I it out. But um, the court appoints Miller as the administrator of the decedent's estate. And then the next box that's checked is box number three. And, and box number three states what powers that person has. So this one says the personal representative is authorized to administer the estate under IEAE Act with full authority. They could have it with full or limited authority. Sometimes people say, hey, we have independent administration. Well, all of it is under the Independent Administrations Act. But, but in California, we specifically give you either full authority or limited authority. This one that we're looking at has full authority. That means the person can sell it without getting a court order. They sell it, with full, they sell it almost as a regular sale. 
So the letters are very important. There's typically a couple things you look at. Who's the, the name of the decedent to make sure it matches his title, right? That way you know you have the right estate and the right and or the right property. You're gonna to wanna to look at who the court appoints. That way you know you're dealing with the right party, that whoever the court is appointing is the party that's authorized to sell you the property. And then um, in California, you look at what powers they have. Um, other states have maybe different wording that they use, but in, in our state, if they have full authority, they can sell on their own for whatever price, whenever they want, to whomever they want. If they have limited authority, it goes through a court confirmation process in order to get approved. Okay, I'm gonna cover limited authority. So full authority is quite simple. They sell like a regular sale. They can sell to whomever they want for whatever price, no restrictions, et cetera. And on full authority, I don't know the exact percentages. I'm gonna throw a dart and say it's like, 65, 35, 65% are full authority, 35% are limited authority, okay? But that's just me throwing a dart. That's not an actual percentage from any actual statistical data. Actually, Bill, when he's back, you can ask him. Bill does keep track of those statistics and he, he very likely would know the exact percentages of how many probate cases are full authority, how many are limited. Okay, so court confirmation. It is required on all limited authority cases. Conservatorships are required to have a court ordered sale or a court confirmation hearing, it be either or. But limited authority sales have a court confirmation sale. Here's an example of letters where they have limited authority. You know, kind of same boxes that are checked, but in box number three, instead of checking full authority, it's checked to have limited authority. When they have limited authority, the sale is different. There's a lot of different procedures. There's a referee, which is kind of like a court appraiser that puts an opinion of value. You have to sell it for a certain percentage of that value. Um, there's requirements on the deposit, there's requirements and all this stuff. I'm not, this, the purpose of this today was not to go over all those requirements. The purpose is to get, kind of give you a high level overview. The key with it is this, when they have limited authority, you know it has to have court confirmation. So if you're gonna wholesale this property, it's pretty much out of the question. You can't wholesale it when they have limited authority because you gotta get a court order approval for the buyer. Um, when they have, unless you assign it before the court approval. When you have, uh, full authority, no problem. You can sell to whoever, however, it doesn't really matter. So um, it's just important to know that as investors, that when there's limited authority, where you can, he can sell, the owner can sell the property to you, but the, it's going to go before the judge and they're going to have to have an approval process before you can close that sale. And uh, in, in California, that approval process includes an overbid process. Now, we're one of the only states that has a process like that. I know Washington has a, they have a requirement on some cases that there has to be some overbidding process. In other words, you have to put the property through an auction, but it doesn't have to be confirmed in the court the way ours do. Uh, many other states may have supervised and unsupervised sales. I know Texas does and, and uh, Colorado does. And in both of those states, attorneys have told me it's extremely rare that they have a court supervised sale that like 90 plus percent of all their sales are unsupervised sale. Um, so the court confirmation sale in California is kind of the equivalent of a, a um, supervised sale in other states. So there's a lot of procedures you gotta follow. Um, if you guys are real estate agents and you're listing something that has court confirmation, even after you accept an offer, you continue to market as part of your due diligence. Um, the sale is a no contingency sale. It's very important. And I'm just going to go over some of these guidelines really quick. You got to sell it for 90% of the referee's opinion of value. There's an overbidding process. There's specifications on when they're um, 
I'm sorry, what the deposit amount will be and, and all of that. Um, can the, I ask you a question? Yeah, just, just give me one moment because I want to get through the, the, okay. the court confirmation before I, I stop for questions. So the court confirmation is a date, you know, they sell the property, they submit the offer to the attorney, and the attorney does what's called a report of sale. That files with the court that, hey, we've sold the property, we're ready to approve this. Then they wait about three weeks, two to three weeks, and then they have a confirmation hearing, which is the overbid portion in process, I mean, in, in court. That, from that overbid process comes this court order, and this court order dictates that we can sell the property. This, without this court order, you cannot close your real estate transaction. <clears throat> I'm not going to go through all the detail, but just to cover some of the highlights, it tells the price down here in box number nine, says it's as is with no um, contingencies, blah, blah, blah. They talk about real estate commission in there. The escrow is going to follow that real estate commission when it comes time to pay out commissions. Um, and, and there's whatever other details are there uh, for the court confirmation hearing. Now, um, the, the agent that's involved is typically going to be highly involved in getting the proper information on this court order from what happened in court so that it ends up on the order so that the escrow and title close in accordance with uh, what was what happened on the court order. Um, if you guys want full detail on, uh, I'll, I'll put my, I'll give you my info before we end. And if you want more detail on, on the specifics of closing the probate transaction in California, I, I have a, a, a um, a 101 class, like the beginner class, and then I have a more advanced class and you guys can take a look at those. And I think I may have trained one for Bill's team already. So before I go into the closing docs, I think someone had a question. Go ahead with your question. Yes, I'm from Las Vegas, Nevada. Okay. Now, I have a couple questions here. I wanna know that the letters testamentary, is that like limiting the petition? Because I know the first step you have to do is the most important, well, not the most important, but the petition gives you all the information. Right. Okay. So the petition is where when you petition the court, you're asking the court for something. So the petition says, hey, court, John Doe died. We want to probate his estate. That's usually what's in a petition across the country. Right. And then out of that petition, out of that petition comes an order. Usually in some states it's called in California and many states call like an order for probate or it's, it's something that says, yes, we are going to probate this estate. The letters then, and a lot of times the petition will state, you know, I'm petitioning because John passed away and Kevin, I want to be the administrator of the estate. A lot of times in the petition, they'll be stating who is asking to be the administrator of the estate. And then when the letters come out, they, if they approved who petitioned, then that shows up on the letters. If they did not approve who petitioned, then whoever they did approve would show up on the letters. So um, I don't know that I could say it mimics what's on the petition, but that's kind of the way the kind of the way it works. Okay, so the first thing is the petition, then comes the letters testamentary, uh, and then the court order. Usually, it's the other way around. Usually, it'll be the petition, then the court order, and the letters. Okay. And uh, the that's, that's 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 how it is in California. So I can't speak to every other area, but. So it's you don't know about Nevada then, right? No, no, but it's very similar in Colorado. It's very similar in a lot of the other Western states, but the specific order is not necessarily that important. But if you really want to dig into the details, you know, I would talk to an attorney out there about the specific order that they go in. Now, another, another thing that you had said that a realtor needs in order to, uh, if you have a, a probate property, you need to have a complete the transaction, you need a copy of the court order. Is that, is that what you said? Yes. Yeah, so, so every state is going to be different with this. So I'm not sure on Nevada, but in California, there is always going to be 
a certified copy of certain court documents that we have to have to record to close the, the case. And depending on the document, it may be recorded or may just be for the title company's benefit. But um, so, so you have to get those. It doesn't, you know, I may have said the, the agent because usually it's the agent that gets those. But if there is no real estate agent or it's a for sale by owner type of situation, then either the attorney or the principal provides those documents because we have to have certain documents from the court case file in order to close. Bill, quickly, uh, how do you find the, uh, the, the will or the living trust? Is there any, any sources you can share with us? No, it's a private document. When I, um, like I mentioned earlier, you have to ask the, your client for it. When I, if I go out and create a will right now, that will is only wherever I put it. If I lock it in my safe deposit box, that's the only place it is. They're not filed anywhere. They're not recorded anywhere. They're not, they're not kept anywhere. Sometimes the attorney will keep them, but you have to ask the party that you're working with, the heir, where their copy of the will is. So let me just go briefly over um, the, the closing docs. Um, in California, on a full authority sale, there's the top three documents are what we need. A certified copy of the letters, those letters that I showed earlier. There's a thing called a notice of proposed action. We have to have that. And then just an email from the attorney saying no state taxes are due. Without these documents, you can't close your transaction. So the reason I bring it up today, again, today was not meant to go through the entire process of a probate sale. Today was to talk about, here's some of the hangups related to a closing agent where people have delays on closing their probate transactions and not getting a certified copy of the letters, not getting a plain copy, just an email version of the notice of proposed action from the attorney that gets filed or an email or letter from the attorney indicating no state taxes due, those cause delays. Other things that may cause delays are not using the proper probate forms because those forms help you dictate certain parts of the transaction as well. Okay, on the court confirmation sale, a plain copy of the letter. So those same letters, we just need an email of it. You can email it over, but we need a certified copy of the order confirming sale. And I've mentioned certified copy. I mentioned that on the, on the previous screen. If you don't know what that is, a certified copy means it's certified by the courthouse. It's stamped to say, this is a photocopy, but this is a certified. We are confirming this is a tr exact and true copy of the original document. And that is the only type of copy that you can record at the county recorder's office. And as a title company, we record the court orders when we close the real estate transaction. So that's why we have to have a certified copy of that. And then again, any email or letter from the attorney saying those state taxes are due and utilize the proper estate, uh, I'm sorry, proper forms for your estate that are, that are proper to use for the type of transaction that you're doing. Okay, so that's what I wanted to cover. I wanted to point out some highlights, some bits of information that if you know them will help you in doing your probate transactions because a lot these are the areas where mistakes are made and errors are made, um, especially related to what uh, we like I said, So um, I've had so problems like for two days after I eat it. I have a quick question. Someone's talking. I can't hear I'm sorry. Can you hear me now? Yeah, someone else was talking in the background. So oh, I wanted, sorry. So um, before I take a couple of questions, I wanted to you know oh, sorry. After, after we take a couple of questions, then we're open for you if you have different issues, a matter, a file, something that you're working on right now, we can also talk about those. So during this time that I'm hoping for questions, we, you can bring those things up. For those of you who joined late, I'm Kevin Sales. I'm the guest speaker um, um, for today. Uh, so someone called me Bill, but I'm not Bill Gross. I'm the guest speaker, Kevin Sales. Okay. Um, I, I don't know who that was that was speaking that had a question, but go right it ahead. It was Jamie. Um, so the, the confirmation of the court confirmation, yes. when you do go into the overbidding process, 
due to limited authority. Basically, the offer that you've gotten on the table is not going to be valid. So basically, you're getting offers that there's going to be an overbidding process for, and that overbidder is going to win versus the offers that you've gotten. So yeah, no the, offer is going to be good. The better way to say it would be that the offer that you accepted is subject to overbid. So if no one overbids, then that's the offer you're moving forward to and going into escrow with. If, if someone overbids, then, then there can be a winning bidder that is not that original offerer. But to say it's not valid wouldn't necessarily be appropriate because the general guideline is that the terms of the original contract, the original offer, are the terms that subsequent bidders take on unless different arrangements are made. So, so you got to look at it that way. That it's it's kind of like I don't know if you were in the business back when the short sale debacle was going on after the mortgage meltdown. But back then, you would accept an offer, and it's it's our valid accepted offer. However, it's subject to the bank approving it. The bank's got to approve the offer. And it's kind of similar here where it's the accepted offer. It's the valid offer we're going forward with, but the court has to approve that sale and there could be other overbids that, that beat it out. But you have to let that potential buyer know that there's, Absolutely. yeah, Absolutely. okay. Absolutely. The real estate agents generally put it in the MLS that this, the sale of this property is subject to court confirmation. They should be publicizing and advertising the sale date, the confirmation date, all of that, because their agents are supposed to make this property available to all of the general public so that it meets the guideline of having fair and open ability for overbid. Okay, does anyone have other questions or transactions or scenarios they wanna go over? Okay, let me check the chat. I see a few questions in the chat. Um, Okay, I see a lot of questions in the chat. Let's see here. Kevin, um, this is uh, Ronnie from Las Vegas. If there's a third party appointed, okay, there are two executors, okay, uh, an executor and a co-executor, two brothers, yeah. and a third party is uh, appointed. Uh, okay, so third, third party, a third party is appointed as what? As um, to like if. If one person doesn't agree with the other person, then the third party is the breaker, okay? Okay. All right, now, um, I mean, whether you have full or limited authority, the end result is that whatever offer you get has, whatever offers you give, you receive, they have to go through the third party and then the third party submits it to the court. For approval, yeah. right? so, so our, our transactions in California don't go like that. We don't have, right. um, we, we, we would, if we had co-administrators, those co-administrators would decide. Um, co-administrators can be three, it can be five people, it can be 10 people, it can be two people. Um, the lion's share of estates are just going to have one administrator. So I'm not familiar with that profit process that you guys do in Nevada, where you have a third party that is like an intermediary to, to right, right. those types of things. I'm not familiar with that at all. I recommend that you talk with the attorney that's involved in that situation. And second, I don't believe Nevada has full and limited authority and, and most certainly not the same way we do here in California. California, our court confirmation sales, we're just about the only state that does it that way. So I don't believe Nevada has that. So you might wanna talk with an attorney in your state to, to verify you know, the answer for your question. 
Well, basically me being on this this every week, does it really pay for me? Because you're referring to California law and I'm in Nevada. So does it really, you know? Yeah, well, certain certain specific, there's certain things that are going to have idiosyncrasies, you know, and you'll probably find this as well. County by county, there's differences. For instance, in LA County, we do for real estate commission, it's 5%. They want 5% all the time. In Orange County, they do 6% all the time. So not only are you going to have differences, you could even have differences judge by judge and attorney by attorney that do things slightly different because the probate laws in any given state are the guidelines. They can't speak to every single idiosyncrasy in every single situation in, on a transaction. So they're the higher level guidelines. Some of the things are gonna be similar for most states. When you're, you're getting to a very specific situation with, with some very um, intricate detail, I'm sure that's not the same on every single case. And so with something that intricate, you definitely should talk with an attorney there. But a lot of, for instance, the process and, and almost I don't want to say all 50 states, but in the lion's share of states, the process is going to be similar where you file a petition to, to request probate. There's going to be an order that comes out for that, and then there's going to be letters. That's the same in many, many of our states. Right. Now, someone might be on this call that's in a state where they do it completely different. I don't know because I don't know everybody that's on here, and I don't know every state's laws. So there's, there's a lot of themes that are the same. Some of the detail of what I was going over today um, – some of it applies only to California, other detail does not. Reviewing title as your first step, that's gonna be the same no matter what state you're in. Now, how they hold title and what that means can be different based on the state you're in. So, so you gotta got be able to glean and figure out which things you know, may change or may be different in your state. I have a couple questions from the chat. Does the TOD replace a trust? A, a TOD, you know, that's a question you gotta ask an attorney, right? I would not say a TOD replaces a trust. Someone might use a TOD and not a trust. They wouldn't, they, they likely wouldn't use both on the same property. That would be kind of impossible. But you could, I guess, have a situation where they have one property going through a trust and one property being done through a TOD. Um, there could be situations like that, but they, you wouldn't use most, you would not be using a TOD and a trust on the same property. All right, let's see. Someone said, thank you, Bill. And he's not here, but I'll tell him you said thanks. Uh, in California, is there a way to avoid paying taxes from the sale of a flip in real property? If you make income, you're going to pay taxes. That's the way our government works. So you write off your expenses on the taxes. I'm not a tax person. Talk to your tax people. Uh, rather than paying taxes, can you just buy a replacement property? So what you're talking about is a, is a 1031 exchange, and that is possible. Um, be careful on doing it on a flip and get proper legal advice because it's for properties held for investment. There are there are questions about if flips are held for investment. So talk to your tax people to to um, get that um, get, talk to your tax people to get that determination. Okay, uh, and then I see something about you know keeping the property inside escrow or the title company that doesn't really work. So get some legal advice on how you want to deal with that. Uh, let's see. After receiving full authority, can we go forward listing? Absolutely. I, I meant to mention this, Rama, so I'm glad you brought it up. That document, the letters that I went over, the reason I wanted to bring that up is that is, and the reason I put that as one of the first things is that's the most important document. I mentioned it's like a driver's license. That's the most important document that puts the person in charge of the estate. That's what gives them the powers. Once they're in charge, once they have powers, have them sign your listing, have them sign your contract if you're an investor buying, because now they have the power to do so. So very important. Once you see that they have those letters, they have the power, have them sign the documents. Deal with the attorney afterwards. 
because once you have them signed, you have them under contract. So that's typically how most people do it. Um, does everyone get stepped up basis in value on death? Are there exceptions? That's a good question for a, for a, a tax preparer. Um, generally, there is a stepped up value on death, but that's a question for a taxpayer. Um, okay, Josephine, has there been a case where a bank owned an, a bank allowed an executor to assume a loan and keep the property? Someone told me that he is working on such a thing. Okay, um, typically banks don't lend to executors. They would typically, now, if that executor is the heir who's gonna receive the property out of the estate, then they could potentially do that. But them, them assuming a loan is just like qualifying for a loan brand new. But, um, but that could happen that the property is given out of the estate and documentation is recorded to move the property out of the estate name or out of the decedent's name into the heir's name and then that heir could assume the property. But typically, uh, generally financial institutions do not lend to executors and administrators. You gotta deal with like hard money lenders if you need to do a loan for an executor or administrator. But it's up to the bank if they wanna, if a bank wanted to do that, they could do it. Last, in California for fullest authority, realtor commission is fixed by whom? Realtor commission is a guideline in the court that you're working in. So like I said, in, in LA County, they do 5% pretty much only. In, um, in um, Orange County, they do 6% all the time. You know, I, I would argue that if you're selling vacant land, vacant land usually comes with 10% commission. I would argue that if, if, you know, if there's good reason and it's in the best interest for the estate to do it at a 10% commission because it opens it up to other agents that wants to sell the property, just like all the competition on the market would, then I would think you, you have a reason to um, um, petition for more commission, but it, it, the, the judge could scale that back and, and could want you to lower it. And typically attorneys get involved in that and would want to do it. One last question here, as a wholesaler, how would you go about door knocking probate leads? Should I focus on the personal representative? The personal representative is your only person. The reason I talked about looking at title and getting a copy of the will or the trust and seeing the letters is because that party that's identified in a will or trust or that party that's identified in the letters, that is your seller. And so if you're dealing with the other brother, they may not be the person who's gonna sign a contract or that's ever gonna have powers to sell the property. You wanna deal with that personal representative. So if you have probate leads, there's gonna be a petition. The probate leads are when a person files a probate case companies buy that data and sell it to you as probate leads. Typically, that person that's filing is usually the person that becomes the, the, the administrator or executor of the estate. That is your party. You want to deal with the right party because if you have a contract or an agreement signed by someone else, you may be dealing with the wrong person, kind of like the example I talked about with the nephew. Okay, I've seen heirs getting a loan against their interest. How much percent do they get? It seemed to be a scam until I saw it. No, it's not a scam. It's absolutely not a scam. Perfectly legal in most states. Um, each company that gives, they're called air advances. They're not really a loan. Uh, each company that gives those de determines their own percentages in, in that. And um, um, that's very interesting. I'd be, I think that's Miguel. I'm going to put my, my info in the chat. And um, I recommend all of you take a picture of it because uh, Miguel, if you're interested in that, I do know a lot of information about that and we can talk offline. Um, I'm, I'm actually have expertise in that area. So I'm gonna give you my phone number and you guys can text me or call me at that number anytime that you like. 
And if you have transactions and you want some help with them, I highly recommend, I'm a closing agent, so I can, I highly recommend it because what I do with people that have a transaction in there, trying to piece together, you know, I'm talking to the daughter and there's a niece and all this to try to piece that together. I help you get to the right party that's gonna be the person authorized to sell the property and therefore the right party that's gonna be, you know, your seller, your person signing contract. So, um, that's good. Are there any other questions before we wrap up? It's 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 been an hour, and I know we should be um, finishing up here. So, but I wanted to make sure if anyone else has an important point, we should we should make that point. Okay, it doesn't look like it. There's no more questions in the chat. Um, I I didn't see where you uh, posted your uh, info. It's in the chat. Um, I have my phone number there. Ah, got it. Yeah, Kevin Sales, my number. You guys can write it down if you like. Two one three. Three six four three eight one zero. Thank you. I welcome your calls or text messages. All right. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you for allowing me to be the guest speaker today uh, for Bill. Thank you. And Thank you so much, Kevin. You're welcome. You're welcome. Hopefully, I'll see you on a future call. Um, I do stop by from time to time, and and he has me as guest speaker often. So hopefully, I'll see you in the future. Thanks for participating. Thank you, Bill. Have a good one. Thank you. Bye bye. Have a good evening. Thank you.